that song we sang, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, there's a line in there where Christ is referred to as the dear desire of every nation. And it reminded me of a passage in the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. And Haggai and Zechariah the prophets were sent to Israel at the end of a 70-year period of God's judgment. God judged Israel for 70 years, according to the prophet Jeremiah. They were sent to Babylon to serve the king of Babylon. They were in captivity for 70 years. God's anger or indignation was against Israel for her rebellion for 70 years. And the land laid desolate without a temple. For 70 years. So when God gives prophecy in characteristic Old Testament fashion, it often has multiple layers of fulfillment. I'm not talking about allegorical or spiritual fulfillment. I'm talking about literal prophecy fulfilled literally. But it's not one dimensional. It's not two dimensional. It often is fulfilled quite literally A multiplicity of ways, just as John the Baptist fulfilled literally the prophecy of a most forerunner ahead of Messiah. Jesus says, this is Elijah that should come if you will receive it. But he that is also fulfilled ahead of the second coming of Christ by Elijah himself. So the same multi-tiered level of prophecy we often see in the Old Testament was right there with regard to Jeremiah's prophecy of the 70 years of judgment. In fact, it came to Daniel when Daniel was praying over this scripture in chapter 9. We're going to talk about it. But there was a period of indignation against Israel during that time where God was angry with them because of their rebellion. And that rebellion began, that open rebellion began... In 589 BC, with the rebellion of the king of, of um, the king Zedekiah against Nebuchadnezzar, when God had sent the prophet and told them to submit to Babylon, and the king refused, and the people rebelled, and that 70 years went until about 520 BC, and that indignation came to an end when God sent prophets to the people regathered into the land. And one of those prophets was Haggai. And when Haggai came into the land, he came preaching against the dead religion of the people that had already crept into their lifestyles. They weren't worshiping idols and going after idols, but they were married to dead religion and formalism. And the prophet came. You had the temple foundation rebuilt. It was in the time of Zerubbabel, the governor, who's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in that line, the line of Joseph and the line of Mary. Both of those lines crossed in that day. And you had a situation where there were old men who had seen the temple, Solomon's temple in its previous glory. And you had a younger generation who had only heard stories. And so when the foundation of the new temple was built, you had the younger generations rejoicing at God fulfilling His Word, but you had the old men weeping because what they saw paled in comparison to what they remembered. 
And God sent the prophet to say, look, the work that was started will be finished. My judgment will come to an end. And there's going to be something about this second house, this second migdash or temple. If you hear people speaking in Hebrew and they say the word migdash, it refers to the temple. There is no migdash in Israel today. There have only been two, Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple that Herod remodeled. Both are destroyed. But God told the people that this temple, though it pales in comparison in terms of its outward beauty, will actually, its glory will actually surpass the first temple. And the reason why its glory will surpass it is because one day the desire of all nations will actually come and stand in this temple. God in the flesh never stood in the first temple. The fire of God came down from heaven, but not God incarnate. And so in Haggai chapter 2, God says this in verse 6, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. So he's talking about that house, that second temple. That temple was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. The western wall that the Jews go to worship at today is not part of that temple. It was a retaining wall that Herod built around the top of Mount Moriah and he expanded the grounds of the temple and created a flat area we know as the Temple Mount. The western wall is not part of the temple. It was just a retaining wall. But in this house, God says, the desire of all nations shall come and I will fill it with my glory. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. That temple's gone. And Messiah had to come before that temple was destroyed. Daniel tells us that in his 70 weeks prophecy. So if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, then this prophecy falls to pieces. This is an interesting passage of Scripture that I like to point Israelis to when we talk about the Messiah. But here, Jesus, Yeshua, is referred to as the desire not only of Israel, but of all nations. Why would the Messiah be the desire of all nations? What is it that the peoples of all nations under the rule of their own government's desire. What is it they desire? Is it not justice? Is it not fairness for both the haves and the have-nots? Is it not those that would rule and reign with equity and would, would, would live out the very laws they expect us to abide by? Is it not justice and yet mercy? Is it not equal weights and balances? Is it not fairness without corruption? Is it not peace? Are these not the things we desire, whether we be living under freedom and liberty in the West or under oppression and tyranny in the Middle East? 
Is this not the desire of all nations? All nations desire to be ruled in righteousness. And we don't have it. We can't find it in a political party. We can't find it in a president. And yet we desire it. We desire it. What we desire is a Mashiach. What we desire, whether we'll admit it or not, from the atheist or the agnostic down to the superstitious religious, is a Messiah. One to come and rescue us from this world system. Jesus is the desire of all nations. And what we desire of a Messiah will come to pass in his millennial reign. So the millennial reign of Christ, which we have been talking about, is a desire of all nations, if we're honest, because we don't have it. Do we not desire justice? Regardless of what side of the political aisle you may boast about standing, do we not desire to see the corrupt who lie and steal from us pay for their crimes? Those who do things and get completely away with it, where if we were to do that same thing on a much smaller scale, be we liberal or conservative, we would pay for it harshly. And yet they just go about it. They commit crimes openly. It's admitted that there are crimes, but yet it's, oh, there's no bias. Oh, there's no reason to prosecute. There is no justice. We desire it. And it's coming. If the people's court doesn't rise up and drag these scumbags out in the street and beat them to death, there's one who will come and destroy them with the breath of his mouth. There will be justice. There will not be haves and have-nots. There will not be the same always on the bottom, no matter who is in power or which party governs. There won't be the elite. There won't be those lying through their teeth in the media and looking down their nose at us average people. There won't be any of that. There will be peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. A peacemaker is not a pacifist. Our Lord's not a pacifist. And when he comes to make peace, he wages war and righteousness. And that is the desire of all nations, not just the Jews. So when we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, we're not talking about the birth of Christ. We're longing for the coming of Christ. That ought to be our longing. Not just this season, but every month of the year. Not looking back, rejoicing that God filled His Word, but looking forward, longing. Not just like Israel in exile, but we're all in exile from the day our first father and mother sinned against God. And the ground was cursed. And what we seek is the desire of all nations. That's the heart of what we've been talking about. I've kind of started camping out here in Revelation 20, verse 7. And that's okay. Let's camp out in this future hope for a while. Every day we go out of here, we look at the news. Don't make the mistake of getting up in the morning and checking the news before you read your Bible. I make that mistake so many times. It just ruins my day. I let it ruin my day. Don't be that way. But everything is negative, 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 negative. No justice, no justice, no justice. Instead of despairing in these things, let's look toward that future hope and let's camp out there for a while. 
When I left you last week, we were talking a bit about Israel's judgment. God carried her away to Babylon, just like it was prophesied in the Torah, in the law. Prophets came, warned the people. They didn't listen. How identical is it to us today in America? America doesn't have a promised end other than the promised end of all Gentile kingdoms, which is to be crushed to powder by the stone cut without hands that becomes a mighty mountain, the Messiah, and driven away like the chaff in the wind. That's our promised end, not that of Israel. I've talked about how only a fool judges Israel's history. Wise men learn from it. And so as we're looking toward the reason why the millennium has to happen, its purpose, there in verse 7, when these things are expired or when the thousand years are fulfilled, accomplished, or expired, then the devil will be loosed. They have a purpose. And we, we are looking at Israel's judgment in Babylon to shed light on that. And so last week I kind of got off topic a little bit, looked at the reign of a king, Abijah, in Judah. We talked about how things we lightly esteem in this life, little parts of the Word of God, we think, oh, that's not so important. We can just agree to disagree. No, God takes those things seriously. And because Israel rejected what God asked of them with regard to giving the land rest, she paid for it. And the land was given its rest. God's going to have His way one way or another. We can go along with the Lord and it can be the easy way or we can reject it and it'll be the hard way. We see that with Israel and her history and we're going to see it with the earth in its future. Jeremiah prophesied that 70 years Israel would serve the king of Babylon. We're told why in 2 Chronicles 36. That's where I ended last week. Oftentimes the kings, they were contemporaneous. The, the author that wrote the kings were contemporaneous with the events, many of them. Not, dis, not separated in time before the Babylonian captivity. The author of the Chronicles... Probably Ezra was after, during or after the captivity, looking back on those same events, highlighting the messianic hope in the line of David, looking toward the future. So often the chronicler wouldn't just tell the events, he would explain why. You know, we are fools not to look at history, not to look at the headline news with a spiritual perspective. There is always a spiritual perspective that sheds light on what is happening. Is it a coincidence spiritually, regardless of what you think about the president, regardless of what you think about the spiritual state of America or what it would take to make America great again, regardless of any of that, is it, not, is it a coincidence that at the same time, both here in the United States and in Israel... You have a political deadlock. You have a person in position of executive power that is being accused of crimes, that is facing uh, potential uh, repercussions from the legislative body and from the courts. Is that a coincidence when you look at God's plan for Israel and the blessings of America that are tied to that? No. God is at work. You see, Israel's deadlock. They're going to a third election. Because they, their, their system of, of government is different from ours. I'm not going to go into those details. 
but they can't decide on a leader. And so after another deadlock, there's another election coming in March. They can't choose a government. They're deadlocked. They have no government. Is that a coincidence? If they can't figure out how to govern themselves, is it possible that someone will arise and step into that role, just like the Bible says? These things are happening before us. My Aikido instructor, an elderly man, says he likes to pick up the Bible because it's like reading a newspaper, relevant today. So these things are all tied together. And when we look at the situation of our nation, what is to come, history and looking forward in prophecy, there's always a spiritual perspective. And it always points to God and His Word. It can be trusted. But in 2 Chronicles, we're told why Israel would go to Babylon for 70 years. We're told that Nebuchadnezzar burnt the house of God and break down the wall of Jerusalem and burnt all the palaces thereof with fire and destroyed all the goodly vessels thereof. And them that had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon where they served, were servants to him and his sons until the reign of the kingdom of Persia. Why? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths. For as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill threescore and ten, or seventy years. A score is twenty. Threescore is sixty, and ten is seventy. Israel was taken out of her land for seventy years so that the land itself could have Sabbath rest. Remember, Israel was told to sow their land for six years, let the land rest in the seventh year. God would provide three years' worth of crop in the sixth year. It was a step of faith, an act of trusting and resting in Him, a reflection of God's rest during the creation week. The purpose was to say, hey, can you stop what you're doing, not just once a week, but every seventh year and trust in me? Can we do the same? Often we find it impossible or difficult to do so. I noticed they deliver mail on Sundays now. While we were singing, the mailman came to the, the front door. It really is a shame because here in America, the fact is we can't stop. We can't stop what we're doing to rest in the Lord. I don't expect the lost to do so, but the church, it really is a shame. Programs, 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 schedule, schedule, schedules. It's not the way it's meant to be. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And we're going to pay for it, just like Israel did. Jeremiah prophesied from the time of Josiah all the way until he saw the temple destroyed and the people taken captive. And he prophesied that this judgment was coming. But the people, the elite, the people around the king wouldn't repent. One king took the words that Jeremiah had written down wadded it up and threw it, cut it up with a penknife and threw it in the fire. So when we read part of Jeremiah, we're not reading what was written in the original. We're reading a copy. Just like the original Ten Commandments, Moses threw them down and broke them, so they were redone. You had another king that knew the city was going to fall. Jeremiah told him exactly what he needed to do to escape, and he refused. He tried to escape on his own, watched his children slain before his eyes, and then his eyes poked out and carried off to Babylon. 
But Jeremiah told the people they would serve the king of Babylon. I want to read one verse because we often quote it and I believe misapply it or ignore the original context. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, For thus saith the Lord that after 70 years be accomplished, these 70 years had a purpose, just like the thousand-year reign will have a purpose. Those 70 years, as we're told in Chronicles, were tied to the Sabbath rest of the land. After 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. Who's he talking to? The captives of Israel. Why? For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. This was not Israel's end because God had said so to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God had said so through the prophets. Her expected end, her ultimate future, is the millennial reign of Christ when she shall be chief of the nations, when she shall live according to the laws God commanded in obedience and with joy. So this captivity and return is pointing to an ultimate end. It, does, it wasn't to exist in and of itself. It was to prove or to guarantee that what was expected at the end would come to pass. Like Old Testament prophecy, often an initial fulfillment that would guarantee the ultimate fulfillment. Christ's first coming guaranteed His second coming. Israel's return from Babylon guaranteed that they would return from all the places they were scattered to their land and live in peace one day under the rule of Messiah. So we often usurp verse 11 to talk about God's good thoughts for us and He's going to give us a future. That's true for us as believers, but it's often used to justify the decisions in our lives when we haven't even sought the Lord We haven't even sought spiritual counsel from our local church authorities. So that's misusing the scriptures. And to ignore its primary context, which is the people of Israel, is foolishness. But God would bring Israel back after 70 years, and he did. Scripture teaches us, and history shows us. When we talk about the 70 years of Israel's captivity... It had multiple layers of application or multiple layers of fulfillment. There were the 70 years spoken of by Jeremiah here in which Israel would serve the king of Babylon. This began with the first captivity in 605 BC when Nebuchadnezzar took the initial group of captives. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were part of this captivity. Began in 605 B.C. all the way until 535 B.C. when King Cyrus made his decree that he would rebuild, that the temple would be rebuilt, and he said, who will go and return to the land? Seventy years of servitude. But it wasn't just servitude. Ezekiel went into captivity in 597 B.C. with King Jehoiachin 
reigned for three years as a, at 18 years old, rebellious spirit, taken captive. Ezekiel dates everything from his captivity, 597 B.C. The captivity, the captivity. There were 70 years of captivity for Israel. Not just a few that went astray in 605, but the majority. The common people. 597 B.C., this would go until 527 B.C. Another level of literal fulfillment. Then there was the indignation. Ezekiel and the prophets, the latter prophets, speak about 70 years of God's indignation or anger or fury at Israel. Do you remember when Saul was given a commandment? He rebelled against the Lord and God was furious and took away the kingdom. Samuel said, what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear if you've been... Well, we just brought a sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel said what? To obey is better than sacrifice. And rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. God hates rebellion. So after this 70 years of servitude and captivity was determined, after the pieces of Israel's society had already gone into captivity the people and the king remained in a state of rebellion. Jeremiah sent, was sent to King Zedekiah and said, Look, go out and submit yourself to the king of Babylon, and I will prosper you. I will fulfill my word, and I will prosper you. Submit, but if you refuse, my fury will be unleashed upon you. The king refused. And that indignation began in 589 B.C. when Zedekiah chose to rebel against the king of Babylon when God told him to submit. And it lasted until about 520 B.C. when God sent Haggai and Zechariah the prophets to those who had returned to the captivity. God spoke again through his prophets. If you read Zechariah in chapter 1, he talks about that year being the end of God's indignation. So we had a 70-year period of indignation. And then finally, we have what, are called the, what is called the 70 years of desolation or the desolations. This was a 70-year period. This is the period we're concerned with because it's linked to the temple and the Sabbaths of the land. That began in 586 B.C. when the temple was destroyed. And it ended in 516 B.C. when the new temple was dedicated. So when God told Israel she'd be punished in captivity for 70 years, it wasn't just, oh, you're going to go out of the land and come back. God's judgment was full and multi-tiered. 70 years you're going to serve. 70 years most of your people will be in captivity. 70 years I'm furious with you and your rebellion. And 70 years your land will lay desolate without a temple. These things shed light on Old Testament prophecy. It's literal. It can be understand. It's true to a word, to a jot, and to a tittle. But it's not simplistic in the, in the sense of uh, uh, being elementary. It has multi-levels of fulfillment. That's God's word. It's a wellspring of wisdom. What was written to Israel long ago can speak to us directly today. These things should give us confidence in God's word. But I want to look at the prophet Daniel because he is studying this prophecy 
of Jeremiah and the 70 years wondering, is it almost time for this to come to an end? What is God going to do? You see, Daniel went into captivity when that servitude began in 605 B.C. And we're told in chapter 9 that in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, the Persian that took over the city of Babylon when they went in under the city, rerouted the Euphrates rivers and came up through the culverts and invaded the city when Belshazzar and the Babylonians were partying in a drunken orgy and the city was overthrown. One of the great military feats of, of, of human history. But in that first year, which would have been about 538 B.C., Daniel says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years, not in the servitude, not in the captivity, but in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel is studying this prophecy. It's 538 B.C. It's about two to three years since that first kept... In about two to three years, it will have been 70 years since he was taken captive and he's studying this passage. And he comes to an understanding that this is not just about my captivity or the people's servitude. This is about the desolations of Jerusalem. So he kind of has an aha moment. Now I understand what God's talking about. If you go on and read through the chapter as he's meditating upon this 70-year judgment, he says, I set my face to the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made my confession and said... And then he begins to pray to the Lord, seeking understanding. Is this 70-year period coming to an end? What are you going to do with my people Israel? We've sinned against you. I'm not going to read it, but he begins to humble himself before the Lord and speak of his nation. Daniel was faithful. He did what God said. He was obedient. He went into captivity. He showed himself a good witness and a faithful, uncompromising testimony in the land of Babylon. But yet Daniel, when pleading for his nation, doesn't speak about the nation in the third person. He speaks about it in the first person. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wicked, wickedly. We have not listened to your prophets. To us, verse 7, belongs confusion of face. To us, O Lord, verse 8, belongs confusion of face. Confusion upon a people that have turned their back upon God is a judgment of God. Israel was so confused that she, knowing she couldn't defeat the Babylonians, knowing God's promise to protect them if they would submit, still rebelled, still tried and failed couldn't do things to benefit themselves economically, politically, morally or socially in those years if her life depended upon it. Confused. Confused at that day. The Bible says that God, in 1 Corinthians 14, is not the author of confusion in the churches. God does not author confusion in the churches. 
But boy, is he the author of it in a society that claims to know him and yet has turned its back upon him. And here Israel's history ought to be a lesson to us. If you want to know why our society is so divided, as much as it was in the 1850s before the Civil War, if you want to know why there are fools lining up on both the Republican and the Democrat side of the aisles, if you want to know why we're caught up in this impeachment fiasco, why we have all of this insanity in our streets, why we have judges that can't make a just ruling if their life depended upon it, why we have unrest, why we've been invaded from abroad, why all of this craziness, this insanity, why it appears as if America is an insane asylum run by the inmates. Why? Why are we so confused? Because we're under God's judgment. And until we repent, and I'm talking just as much to the president, just as much to the right side as I would the left, until we humble ourselves and repent and return to the God of our fathers like our founding fathers warned us we would have to do, then it's just going to continue. It doesn't really matter what happens in an election next year. It's not going to get any better. Daniel understood that. And Daniel's response is humility and repentance. We have sinned. We have sinned. To the Lord our God belongs mercies and forgivenesses, verse 9. Though we have rebelled against Him, neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws which He set before us. This is a testimony of how we should pray for our nation. Not them, they, those, but us. We, O Lord, we're just as guilty because we kept silent. We didn't speak up. We've allowed these things to happen. Just as I've said before, is it any wonder why what's being done to the president is so unjust and wicked? What's being done to him by the Congress, what they're trying to shove through. Why are we surprised? Because how many times have deacon boards and personnel committees done that to a faithful pastor? In a local church. We've taught them how to live like this. We have sinned, O Lord. To us belongs confusion of face. But if we'll humble him and seek him as a body of believers, he's not the author of confusion within these walls and within this body. But as Daniel is praying these things and meditating upon this 70-year period, um, he goes on to, to pray in a spirit of repentance And then he says in verse 16, O Lord, according to all thy righteousness, I beseech thee, let thine anger and thy fury be turned away from the city Jerusalem, thy holy mountain. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and thy people are become a reproach to all that are about us. Now therefore, O our God, hear the prayer of thy servant and his supplications And cause thy face to shine upon thy sanctuary, which is desolate for the Lord's sake. O my God, incline thy ear and hear. Open thine eyes and behold our desolations. So Daniel's studying this prophecy. He's seeking the Lord. And he comes to an understanding that these desolations are tied to the temple. And he prays that God will restore that temple 
and bring those desolations to the end. The end won't come just because a few Jews go back to the land, which would happen two years later. It's tied to the temple. The 70 years of desolation is tied to the temple. What's interesting is as Daniel is praying and confessing his sins and the sins of the people of Israel, God sends him an angel. It's the same angel that God sent to Mary in a town called Nazareth, the angel Gabriel. And the angel Gabriel said, Daniel, you are greatly beloved. Your prayer has been heard. But I don't want you to concern yourself with the 70 years of Jeremiah's prophecy. I'm going to talk about, to you about all of Israel's future. I'm going to talk about the expected end of Israel with the Messiah. I'm going to talk about another period of 70 that I want you to concern yourself with. And that's the great 70 weeks prophecy. That 70 weeks prophecy that was fulfilled literally in terms of the first 69 weeks. We're in the gap between the Messiah being cut off and the temple being destroyed. And the treaty that Antichrist will sign with the people of Israel, that's called the church age. One week of years remains. That's the 70-year tribulation at the end of which Messiah will come and rescue His people. That 70 weeks prophecy proves that Messiah would come, He would be cut off, and that this would happen before the destruction of that second temple that Israel would build. So Daniel is concerned about God restoring the temple so that the land is no longer desolate. God says, I've heard your prayer. I don't want you to concern yourself about that because even that second temple is going to be destroyed. But there's another period of 70 that I want you to write down. And it concerns my purpose for Israel to accomplish six things. Six things are written there about bringing in righteousness and fulfilling all God's promises. So here we see that the desolation whereby the land would lie desolate for 70 years was tied to the temple. 70 years without a temple, the land could lie desolate. No offerings were being brought, no meat or bread offerings. None of that stuff that would require the use of the land could happen. The land would rest and have its Sabbath. This 70 years of desolation was completed when the new temple was rededicated in 516 B.C. 586 to 516, 70 years, the land had rest. However, this fulfillment didn't exist independently. It pointed to an ultimate fulfillment, an ultimate purpose for Israel. 70 years of desolation pointed to 70 weeks of years for God to perform His purpose and promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So these prophecies, these things that God writes, point to an ultimate purpose. I think the same can be said about the millennial kingdom and what God told Israel with regard to the land. She was punished for not giving the land rest. The land needed rest. This points to an ultimate fulfillment with regard to the earth. We, as a human race, haven't given the earth its rest. The creation, the creature groans, longing to be delivered, longing to find rest. Just as Israel's land had to rest, 
I believe that this present earth has to rest. That's why there must be a millennial reign of Christ, a thousand years. If we go to Isaiah chapter 14, this is the prophet, the, the, the chapter we often refer to that talks about Lucifer falling from heaven. But the greater context of this passage is God's deliverance of Israel from the Assyrian or for the Antichrist and fulfilling His promise and Messiah coming to rule and reign. It talks about Satan who made all the nations tremble being paraded and cast into a prison but before the eyes of all them that wonder. Wow, this is the one that brought down kingdoms. Now he's just like one of us. All of the things John writes about there in Revelation 20 with the devil. So this concerns the onset of the millennial kingdom, Isaiah 14. And guess how the earth is described once the Antichrist is smitten, once Israel is delivered, and it shall come to pass in that day, in the day that the Lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow, Isaiah 14, 3. So what God's going to do when he overthrows the Assyrian, when he imprisons Satan, when he delivers Israel, is give them rest from thy sorrow. And then in verse 7 of chapter 14, the earth is described thus. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They, that is the earth, the creature, the creation, and its people, break forth into singing. Quite the opposite of what Paul describes in Romans 8 about the present state of creation. Groaning. Groaning. Yearning. Here the earth is at rest and it breaks forth into singing. The purpose, what does the millennial reign of Christ fulfill? It gives the creature and the creation what it yearns for. Rest. Israel is given rest. Those that remain are given rest. And the earth is at rest as it was back in the Garden of Eden. The earth must rest. This present creation must have Sabbath rest before the Lord is finished with it. We're told in 2 Peter that all these things will one day be dissolved. It will be destroyed by fire. God is going to destroy the present heavens and the present earth. And then he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. Therefore, what manner of persons ought we to be knowing that all of this is one day going to be resolved? Dissolved, not resolved. Dissolved. We shouldn't be attached to anything because it's all going to burn. But before it burns, it has to rest. Because the present creature, the present creation groans, Paul says. Let's look at Romans 8 for a moment. Romans 8, 19 through 22, for the earnest expectation of the creature, that is the creation, the animal life, the trees, the ground, the mountains, waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. When are the sons of God manifested with the Messiah? When he returns to set up a kingdom. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. 
The creation didn't choose to sin against God and be subjected to this curse. Adam did it, and it all suffers as a result. Not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. God's going to destroy the present creation and create a new heaven and a new earth, but not before the expectation and the groaning and the travailing of this present creation finds rest. And that rest is in a very literal kingdom, a thousand years. And only when that thousand years is fulfilled or expired is Satan allowed loose for a time. And then everything comes to an end. There's a new heaven and a new earth. Hebrews talks about the rest that came at creation, the rest that Israel sought in the promised land, our rest in Christ. But it also talks about a rest that though we rest now in Christ, there is or remains a rest we have not yet enjoyed for the people of God. The writer of Hebrews is making a point here in chapter 3, verse 18, when he talks about those who believed not in the desert. When Israel came out of Egypt, they believed not, and because of their belief, they couldn't enter into that Canaan rest. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? His rest here is the rest God supplied for Israel in the land of promise. But to them that believed not, we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Because of their unbelief, the children of Israel couldn't enter into the Canaan rest. That Canaan rest points to another rest. If you keep reading into chapter 4, because of Israel's example of unbelief, let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them, Israel in the desert. They were preached good news about the promised land, but they didn't believe. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. They didn't have the faith of Abraham. They didn't believe God. That's why they came back saying, we can't take this land. There are giants there. For we which have believed, that is followers of the Messiah, do enter into rest, as he said. So here we have a Canaan rest pointing to a rest that we enter into when we believe upon the Messiah. Guys, we have spiritual rest in the Messiah. We have spiritual rest. The rest that was promised Israel in the land foreshadows the spiritual rest that we who believe have now in Jesus. The question is, do we live that way? 
There is a spiritual rest. If we are in Christ, we have salvation, spiritual rest. We don't have to worry about eternal destiny. We don't have to worry what we're going to eat, drink, or what we're going to wear because God promised us to supply these things. But are we living according to the rest we have? It's hard to say we are when you look at American culture, both inside and outside the church. Are we living in resting? We claim to celebrate Christ's birth, but we can't even find an ounce of rest this time of year. So we're not celebrating the Messiah if we can't rest in Him. So there's a Canaan rest that many of Israel missed. There's a spiritual rest or Sabbath that we have in Christ. Then he goes on and refers in verse 4 to the creation rest. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. So there's a Sabbath rest, a creation rest. God rested on the seventh day. He told Israel to rest on the seventh day. But this points to something greater. If you go on to verse 9, after we're told there's a Canaan rest that Israel missed. Now, keep in mind, Paul's writing to Jews scattered who are wavering. Okay, kind of like John the Baptist did in prison. If you've been reading each, a chapter in Luke each day, you'll remember some days ago that John sent his disciples to Jesus. John had been arrested by Herod for taking a stand for righteousness. And he's rotten away in prison. And he's hearing these stories of Jesus... And he's wondering, is this the one that should come or should I look for another? So he sends his disciples to ask Jesus plainly, look, are you the Messiah or have I made a mistake here? Then what did Jesus do in those moments? He healed the sick. He showed his power. He cast out devils. And he sent them back to John and said, tell, go and tell John the things you have seen. That was Jesus' answer. He answered with the miracles that no man could do except for God be with him. And then he turned to the people, didn't criticize John for his discouragement, and says, among those born of women, there's not one greater than John the Baptist, a faithful prophet. But he that is least in the kingdom of God, in the spiritual rest that comes with Messiah, is greater even than him. So a Canaan rest that Israel didn't fulfill, the rest we have in the Messiah, a creation rest that God Himself took when He created the world on the seventh day. And then we get to verse 9 after mentioning all these things to a Jewish audience who was wavering like John the Baptist. And the book of Hebrews is Paul's answer to them. There remaineth therefore. That means there is a future Rest to the people of God. So those of us that have rest spiritually now in Messiah, there still remains another rest for us. That is the millennial rest. The rest that people of Israel missed foreshadowed the spiritual rest we have in Christ. God's rest on the Sabbath day and the commandment God gave to Israel to rest foreshadows the ultimate rest that remains for the people of God. And how do I know that is the millennial rest? How do I know when Paul says there remaineth a rest unto the people of God that that is what he's talking about? Because he's referring to the prophets. And the prophets make this clear. Flip back to Isaiah 11. 
Isaiah chapter 11 is one of the Old Testament's primary passages with regard to the millennial kingdom. That chapter 11 and 12 go together. They shed light on the quality of life that will be during this kingdom. We'll refer to it later, verse by verse. But here in verse 10, in this day, when even the animals don't kill and destroy each other, they go back to the way they were in the Garden of Eden. In that day, verse 10, there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it, that root, which is the Messiah, shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. When Messiah comes and set up a kingdom, that is a rest that is glorious. That is the rest that remains for those, the people of God. And this millennial rest that is often cast aside as being some dark allegory that was fulfilled in A.D. 70 by people who claim to love God's word, this rest is then tied in Hebrews chapter 4 to the word of God. Paul shares these things about rest, about the creation rest, the millennial rest, the rest Israel missed in Canaan, the spiritual rest we have in Christ, and he banks it all or he establishes it on what? Verse 12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Why can we trust that there remains a rest for us? Because God's word is true. Sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. The word of God is so sure it's spoken of here as a person. I've done teaching here before and in my travels about the relationship between the written Word of God and the living Word of God. They are one. You can't have one without the other. You can't be a Christian and not believe the Bible. You can't believe the Bible and not believe Jesus is the Messiah. So there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't believe the Bible. And there's no such thing as a faithful Jew who doesn't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. There's no such thing as a Bible-believing Jew who rejects Jesus as a Messiah. It doesn't exist. No such thing as a Christian who doesn't believe the Bible. This all banks upon the Word of God. Matthew talked to us for a few weeks about eschatology, things of end times, made it very simple for us to understand. And he talked about amillennial and postmillennial theology. And the dangers thereof. And how it leads to replacement theology. When you read and you see passages like this. And you see Paul's line of argument. And when you look back on what the Old Testament says. It really does make these folks who promulgate these theologies look like they're blind and deaf. Deaf mutes when it comes to reading the Bible. A premillennial understanding of the scriptures is the only sane, intelligent, and reasonable approach to both the Old and the New Testaments. It's God-centered. God is going to do what He said He was going to do, just like He did with Israel and giving the land Sabbath rest for 70 years. He's going to do it with this planet. 
Israel is going to do what she was appointed to do. God himself is going to fix this world, not President Trump or not man. Post-millennial or amillennial theology argues that man progresses and gets better and better and eventually ushers in the kingdom of God. That's Catholic theology. That's the theology of Augustine, one of the early church fathers. I like to call him the father of corrupt theology that was used to politically justify Constantine, not only as the Roman emperor, but the head of the church, and to justify Rome in taking over the world and the ascendancy later of the bishop of Rome. It was to justify the Roman Catholic Church's political endeavors, waging wars, raising up and putting down kingdoms. It's a dangerous theology. It's Catholic to the core. And yet there are those who would call themselves reformers who reveal their utter hypocrisy. They preach the sovereignty of God. Not only in salvation, but in history. They preach God's word, solo, sol, soli uh, uh, scriptura, only the Bible. And yet they hold to these prophecies. Like some of the reformers in the Middle Ages that came out of the Catholic church. They came out of the Catholic, but not all the Catholic came out of them. And now today you've got people who otherwise preach the gospel seem to love the word and cling to Jesus as the only way, infatuated with these theologies, not because they're true, but because it's counter-church culture. You know, there are people that are attracted to being counter-culture. The left-wing liberalism was counter-culture in the 60s. It was popular. Now none of that stuff's counter-culture. It's the mainstream. It's the status quo. And so you start to see young people who want to just... Be against what everything is accepted. Fortunately, that can be good sometimes when it promotes righteousness. But a lot of times people follow theology as a reaction against the spiritual deadness of the church. It's counterculture. It makes me different. So it must be true. Reactionary theology is dangerous. And it's all over the place in our church today. Our theology ought to be based upon the Word of God. Regardless of what other churches are saying or doing. But we can trust these things. There's no reason to believe them anything but what they say they are. I believe that Earth's history, just like the creation week points to what God wanted Israel to do on its weekly Sabbath, that itself points to God's plan and purpose for the ages, for the earth. Everything that God did, did through Israel <clears throat> foreshadows what He intends to do with His creation in restoring it to what was lost in the Garden of Eden. I keep wanting to say the Hebrew words because I use those when witnessing to Israelis and it wants to come out. But the prophecy here uh, with Daniel in the temple is interesting. Um, in 1015 B.C., Solomon began his reign. And we're told in 1 Kings 6, 1, that in the fourth year, in the fourth year, so it's inclusive, the temple construction started. So that would have been 1012 B.C. Seven years later, Solomon 
spent seven years building the temple. He spent 13 years building his own house, 20 years. Spent almost twice as long on his own house than he did on God's house. So that ought to tell you something wasn't right spiritually. Took him seven years. The temple was completed in 1005 B.C. And here's the sad thing. God said you, that this temple would lie desolate each year until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. So there was supposed to be a Sabbath year every seven years. Okay, Israel was in captivity 70 years. 70 times 7 is 490 years. So there was a 490-year period that Israel did not give the Sabbath, or give the land its Sabbath rest. The temple was completed in 1005 B.C. and Solomon dedicated it and called the people to obey God and His law. But it was from this point no Sabbath of the land was enjoyed. So from the dedication of the temple, seven years later should have been the first Sabbath year. 998 B.C. But it wasn't. This was toward the latter years of Solomon's reign. What was he busy doing? Trying to appease his wives that wanted to follow those false gods. So Israel did not obey the first Sabbath year after the dedication of the temple. Then we get down to 516 B.C. Israel's in the land 490 years later. 516 was a Sabbath year. The sixth year of Darius, the temple was completed. And so once that land had enjoyed its Sabbaths to A.T., the temple was rededicated. It was fulfilled quite literally. Is my math messed up here? I just want to make sure my math is not messed up. Okay, that's right. Temple was dedicated in 10, oh, 1005 B.C. No Sabbaths were enjoyed. 490 years later, the second temple was dedicated in the 490th year, which was a Sabbath year. And it was a Sabbath by default because there was no temple and the people weren't harvesting the land and all the stuff that would be required to carry out the sacrificial system. God fulfilled His Word. I believe He'll do the same thing with regard to earth's history. The earth will enjoy its Sabbaths. Now when I look at the history of the earth, and just give me a few minutes, I don't want to say that we pulled this board out here for no reason. <laughs> But long, long ago, I want to I look at something because I believe it sheds light on why the millennium is going to happen and why it's close. And it has to do with the earth's Sabbath rest. Just as God created for six days and on the seventh day He rested, I believe that the earth itself will be under the curse of work and toil for six periods. And in a seventh period or a seventh millennium, it will be under rest. So I want to briefly go back to something. One of the very first sermons I ever preached in this church, it was years ago, I still teach this with our volunteer teams, dealt with biblical chronology. 
and that we could trust the chronology. There is no, uh, there are no contradictions when you look at context and when you compare Scripture with Scripture. And even the genealogies and the number of years, these things can be trusted. And we don't need to look to God denying man-made science in the theory of evolution to explain the age of the earth. We can trust the biblical chronology, and then we can see these things affirmed by observable scientific evidence. I went through a lot of the uh, scientific observations that point to a young earth. I don't believe the earth is old. I believe it's pretty young. Um, And I believe uh, that we can trust biblical chronology. So I preached on that long, long ago. Um, Science is not in opposition to the Bible. Science is man's pursuit of knowledge. Okay? Science, when done rightly, confirms the Bible. Archaeology is a science that confirms the Bible time and time again. People say, well, it's the Bible versus science as if evolution and the long ages of the earth taught by science is science. Those things aren't science. That's philosophy because it can't be observed. And when something is observed and tested and agrees with scientific law that has been tested down through the centuries, it's buried. It's not talked about if it affirms the biblical account. So what is called science, most of it today, is philosophy. And genuine science affirms the Bible. So when we look at the age of the earth, we can figure it out quite easily with the scriptures. And I believe that real observable science confirms this, not just one or two pieces or one or two areas of it, but a multitude of areas. With our team Yeshua this year, we talked about biblical chronology, and I shared with them about 20 different pieces of scientific evidence, scientific experimentation that demonstrates the earth to be young. But when we look at the biblical chronology, there are three bridges that bridge between the Bible's chronology and what has been established in secular history, established scientifically. The first bridge is what we call the fall of Jerusalem, which is what we have been talking about today. This took place in 586 BC. Secular history establishes that the fall of Jerusalem took place in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar. We are able to date the reign of Nebuchadnezzar from ancient extra biblical historical sources, and we're able to prove it with events that happened in the heavens that were recorded. Eclipses. Prove this to be accurate. Nebuchadnezzar came to the throne. His first year was called an an accession year. And the, the date of his reign started the new year following the, the year he came to power. So let's say he came to power in August. From August to December, and I'm using our calendar, they would have been different. From August to December, December would have been like it is for the president when he's elected in November. 
He's the king elect or whatever. And then the first year would start with the January 1st. So in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem fell. The 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar is 586 B.C. So this is a great bridge that bridges uh, uh, secular history in the Bible. The second event is what is called in the scriptures Nebuchadnezzar's beginning. What Jeremiah calls his first year. And Jeremiah, the word in Hebrew literally means his beginning. So the year he came to power. So it's not talking about the first year of his reign. Jeremiah tells us his beginning was in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. And it was the same year of the great battle of Carchemish, where uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar overthrew the Assyrians and the Egyptians. Secular history and the biblical chronology have the fourth year of Jehoiakim and the battle of Carchemish, which is Nebuchadnezzar's beginning, crossing in 605 B.C. Here we have another bridge. And then the final bridge that's very important uh, centers around the season we celebrate this year, and that is what Luke calls the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. What, ha what does Luke tell us also was the case in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar? We're told that Jesus was about 30 years old. So the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar was when Jesus was about 30 years old. Secular history tells us that in A.D. 12, Augustus Caesar gave Tiberius equal authority as emperor in the provinces. There were times the Roman emperor wasn't so much like a king. Uh, so there were times when there were more than one emperor. At one point in Roman history, there were four emperors. They all had equal authority. They had the purple, just like elders in a church have equal authority. So Augustus was the sole emperor. He appointed Tiberius emperor over the provinces. I guess Augustus had enough going on with Rome. He couldn't concern himself with this huge empire. Of course, Judea was one of those provinces. So the Jews, Luke included, would have dated their dealings with Tiberius from the time that he was appointed emperor in the provinces. So his, he was appointed emperor in A.D. 12. So in his 15th year, inclusively, would have begin, been A.D. 26. So you've got to take it inclusively, not after 15 years of Tiberius, but in his 15th year. So Jesus was about 30 years old in A.D. 26. His ministry, about three and a half years, would have culminated in A.D. 30. Christ was crucified on Passover, the 14th of Nisan, A.D. 30. First fruits was observed the first day after the week following the weekly Sabbath that followed unleavened bread or Passover. The year when that first fruits would have been exactly three days after Passover was AD 30. So it all comes together 
And these three bridges allow us to date biblical chronology. These bridges are established not just in the Bible, but through secular history as well. So these are the bridges where they cross, and it's from these bridges that we date the chronology. So I want to uh, very quickly give you a quick chronology of the world, and then we will um, end for today. So we know that 586 B.C. was the destruction of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem. This was the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar. And so we start from 586 B.C., the fall of the temple. This is established. If you take the reigns of the kings of Judah after the temple is, after the kingdom is divided, Solomon dies. The kingdom is divided between Jeroboam and Rehoboam. From the first year of Rehoboam, To the 11th year, the last year of Zedekiah, who was king when the temple fell, if we add up these years by looking in the Kings and the Chronicles, we're given 390 years. Now, when we add up the years, we actually get a little bit more than that. And I'm not going to go into all these details, but we have to subtract four years because we're told that Jehoshaphat and his son reigned together. On the throne. There was a four year co regency. So we have to subtract four. There was also a time in Judah's history when, uh, after the days of Jehoshaphat, the, the line of the kings of Ahab and the line of the kings of David had intermarried. And so the kings of Judah were trying to be like Ahab's dynasty. You, you remember the, the, the wicked queen Athaliah that tried to destroy and and Ahaziah and Jehoram. And so they dated their reigns like the kings of Israel, like the pagan kings. They counted their accession year as their first year. So the last year of one king is the same as the first year of another, so it gets repeated. When you bring these things into consideration, which is very easy to do, I just don't want to go into all of it now. The first year of Rehoboam to the 11th year of Zedekiah was 390 years, and this is confirmed... By a prophecy in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 4, 4, and 5, God tells the prophet to lay on his side each day for a year. One side for um, the iniquity of the people of Israel, the other side for the iniquity of the people of Judah. And these time periods have to do with Israel rejecting God while the temple stood. They ended when the temple was destroyed. 390 years for Israel was this period. When Solomon died and the kingdom was divided, Israel was in re- in, in, in Judah were in rebellion against the Lord for 390 years. It came to an end when the temple was destroyed. Judah was in rebellion against God for 40 years. Jesus Christ came. He was buried. He rose up from the grave. The, the veil in the temple was rent. God gave Judah 40 years to repent. From A.D. 30 to A.D. 70, and she refused to, so the temple was destroyed. Israel was given 390 years to get right with God, and she didn't. And so from 586, we had 390 years, and this brings us to 976 B.C. 
It's in the 390th year that Jerusalem falls. So we have to subtract one. It's inclusive. So we get back to 975 BC. We're told that Solomon was king for 40 years. That brings us to 1015 BC. In the fourth year of his reign, 1 Kings 6.11, in the, in the fourth year, that means inclusively, so we subtract three, or we add three, and that, or subtract three, that brings us to 1012 BC, the temple began, the construction of the temple. We're told that the construction of the temple took place in the 480th year that Israel came out of the land of Egypt. So 480 years after Israel came out of Egypt, the temple construction began. So it was in the 480th year. So we have to subtract one to make it inclusive, not after 480 years. So 1012 BC minus 479 brings us to 1491 BC. This is the date of the Exodus. Fourteen ninety one BC, Israel came out of the land of Egypt. Do you understand what I mean? Why I would subtract one here because it's in the four hundred and eightieth year. Now we're told in both Exodus and Galatians that the covenant that God gave to Israel at Sinai, which was the year they came out of the Exodus, was four hundred and thirty years after God made the covenant with Abraham. So we're told in two different places. So we add 430 to the date of the Exodus, which is the same year God gave Israel the law on Mount Sinai. And we come to 1921 B.C. This was the year of the covenant with Abraham. This is when Abraham entered into the land of Canaan. So I'll go over here. 1921 B.C. Abraham enters into the land of Canaan. We are told that Abraham was 75 years old when God made a covenant with him when he went to, to the land of Canaan. So we add 75. We're told that Terah, Abraham's father, was 130 years old when Abraham was born. And then when we add the lifespans of the patriarchs after the flood that are listed in Genesis 11 from Shem down to Terah, we come up with 222 years. When we add all of these together, which 427 years, when we add these to the covenant God made with Abraham, we come to 2348 B.C. This is the year of the flood. 2348 B.C. I'm not talking to you. I didn't say Siri, did I? If we go to Genesis 5 and we look at the age of the patriarchs from Adam down to Noah, we add their years together. That gives us 1,656 years. That puts the creation of the world at 4,004 B.C. Now... To deny this means that these pretty simple calculations, these pretty significant events that God 
details can't be trusted. And in my opinion, if we can't trust what God says about the age of Abraham when he came into the the Canaan, what God says about the year the temple construction started, what God says about the year Jerusalem fell, if we can't trust God's chronology in these major prophetic events, then we've got a problem trusting John 3.16. These are simple calculations that put the creation of the world at approximately 4004 B.C., And I'm not ashamed here or live on Facebook to say this is what I believe. And it doesn't make me unscientific. It doesn't make me unscientific at all. In fact, if we wanted to go into a scientific discussion, we could. We could talk about fossil evidence. We could talk about pleochroic halos. We could talk about the shrinking size of the sun or the shifting of the earth's magnetic field and its decay. Even scientists today are baffled at how the magnetic pole of the earth is moving. It's moving. It's over Siberia now. And it's at such an incredible rate. I just read an article the other day. Scientists are baffled and they don't know what's happening. We could talk about river deltas, mammoths with grass in their mouth. We could talk about lots of scientific evidence that confirms that we have a young earth. But at the end of the day, I could go into all that and the mind that hates God, it wouldn't convince him. Apologetics is not the pathway to change the world. Because the wicked and the atheist and the agnostic and the liberal and the fake Christian and the hypocrites always going to have an answer. Because they're not interested in truth. They're interested in the same thing Lucifer was interested in before he fell from heaven. I will be God. They're interested in the same thing Cain was interested in. I'm going to do it my way. Apologetics have their place. They affirm our faith. But my power of persuasion can't change anyone. Only the gospel can do that. Only the word of God. But I stand by these things. And if the earth was created in approximately 4004 B.C., Where are we today? We're in 2019. If I count back from 2019 to 4004 BC, it means that we're roughly 620,022 years since the earth was created. Now, there was no year zero. So if I add those two together, I come to 6,023, but there was no year zero. Okay? You didn't go from 1 B.C. to 0, 0 to 1 A.D. So we're roughly 6,022 years from the creation of the world. Well, if God's creation week is mirrored in His plan and purpose for the earth, it would seem that this world would exist for 6,000 years under the toil of the curse... And that the seventh millennium, the millennial rest, would mirror God's rest day in His creation week. And that that seventh millennium should be happening. Should be happening. But we're past it. It's 6,022. And a lot of people have done away with this type of theological thinking because of that. And I don't think we need to. I think the scriptures affirm it. 4,004, I would say, is the creation of the world. 
When the world was created, it was created and it was good. And Adam and Eve were put in a garden. They were innocent. There was no curse. There was no sweat. A mist came up from the ground and watered the garden. All was at peace. All was in a state of rest. That happened when God created. When did the curse begin? It began when Adam fell. We don't know when that happened. What we do know is that Adam was 130 years old when his son Seth was born. Remember Seth? God, Eve said, God has given me someone to replace Abel. Seth was born when Adam was 130 years old. But we don't know how old Adam was when the fall happened. His children were born after the fall. There would have had to been enough time for Cain and Abel to at least grow up in, in a way. They didn't have to be very old, but to grow up in a way where they could reason for themselves and know what was right and wrong. And then Cain kill Abel. And then Seth was probably born very shortly after Abel's murder. So we don't know how old Adam was at the fall, but it was probably sometime within his first hundred years. It could have been 20 years after creation. It could have been 30, 40, 50. Could have been as much as 100. We don't know. The earth not in a state of rest, began with the fall. From the fall, what did God do to the ground at the fall of man? He cursed it. And what was the sign of that curse? What was the proof of it? What is the proof that this ground is cursed? Turn to Genesis 3. I'm going to kind of go... I know we're trying to stop a little earlier... Uh, and just bear with me today. I, I wanted to justify bringing this whiteboard out here. Genesis 3, 17. And, and unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. And then go down to verse 19. In the what? In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. The ground is cursed and the proof of it is the sweat of our brow when we till it. Sweat is a physical sign of the curse. It's a physical proof of the curse. Now, when we go out and share the gospel on college campuses or we talk to people, you know, a lot of people visit these atheist websites and they go memorize some things and they have no ability to reason but they claim, you know, oh, are you wearing a shirt made of mixed fibers? You know, God's law said that you're not supposed to, to wear uh, mixed fibers with your clothes, so you don't believe you're a hypocrite. Of course, they're referring to some things God told the Levites in the book of Leviticus about what they were not to wear when they did His service. And there's a reason for it, and it has nothing to do with polyester or polypropylene. Or my shirt that's 90% cotton and 10% something else. In Leviticus 19.19, 19, God says this, You will keep my statutes. Statutes are those things that sometimes we don't understand the reason for it. But God said it and that ought to be enough. A test of faith. Thou shalt not let thy cattle gender with a diverse kind. 
Don't mix your animals and try to do all this hybrid stuff that the pagans do. Thou shalt not sow thy field with mingled seed. In other words, God's calling Israel to be different from the rest of the nations at that time. Doesn't mean that we can't sow different seeds in our garden. This is what God told Israel to do because they were to be a light to the nations. Neither shall a garment mingled of linen and woolen come upon thee. So do not wear a mixture of wool and linen. Oftentimes this would involve a linen undercoat with a wool garment on top of it. And the Levites were told not to do this. Do not do this. And you think, well, why? Oh, I'm wearing polypropylene. What's the problem? I'm, you know, I got to, I'm disobeying God. Well, the answer comes in Ezekiel. And this is tied to the millennial because Ezekiel gives us a picture of the future nation of Israel and the future temple and the future ministry of the Levites and the things that God told them not to do and to do, the things they never obeyed in the past, they're going to obey it in the millennium. They're going to do it right. But in Ezekiel 44, verse 17 and 18, he's talking about the millennial temple. And this is what he says, you know, the Levites and the priests. It shall come to pass that when they enter in at the gates of the inner court, they shall be clothed with linen garments and no wool shall come upon them. Exactly what God told the Levites. They never listened. But now they're, not, they're going to do it my way. No linen and wool mixed together. And then it talks about their bonnets and everything. Why? The answer is in verse 18. They shall not gird themselves with anything that causeth sweat. Why were they not to dress like that? Because they, those, that, that type of dressing was meant to make you sweat. What did the pagans do? The pagans worshipped. And they did things, all kinds of sexual abomination. They believed that sweating and causing sweat and drinking sweat and all this crazy stuff made them one with the universe and one with the gods. It was pagan. Sweat is not a good thing. It is a sign of the curse. And in God's temple wasn't to be the cursed thing. And that's why they were told not to dress in a way that purposely made them sweat. We do that when we work out. We, we dress in ways to make ourselves sweat so we can shed pounds and we can get the impurities out of our body. But God told the Levites not to do that in his temple. That's why. Sweat is a sign of the curse. It is a sign of the toil. It's the proof that this creation is under the curse. This creation has been under the curse for almost 6,000 years. But there's coming a millennial reign, the seventh millennium, just like God's seventh day of rest in which there will be rest. And so we're a little beyond 6,000 years, but it's not a problem because we don't know when the fall took place. If the fall took place about 100 years after Adam was born then that means we've still got about 75 years to go. I believe it'll be literal because everything else that we've talked about with regard to prophecy and chronology has been literal. But the reason we can't know the day or the hour is because we don't know the day and the hour when the earth fell. 
We can know the season. There are a couple of other considerations that make pinpointing the fulfillment of 6,000 years of toil difficult and impossible. Exactly. Not just not knowing the date of the fall, but also when you consider the Jewish calendar and that any portion of a year, according to the Jew, is counted as a year. Okay? So, I don't want to talk about that today, uh, but what I can say is that the rest for the people of God, the coming Messiah, we can't know the day or the hour He comes for His church. We can know when to start counting down when He signs the peace treaty with Antichrist. Uh, Israel does that. We won't be here. But people don't care about God's Word, so they won't listen to it. But <coughs> Christ may not be standing at the door, but He's definitely in the hallway. He's coming down the hall. It is close. And the earth will have its Sabbath rest, just like the land of Israel had to have its Sabbath rest. That's the reason. That's the reason why there must be a thousand years, or what Revelation 20 says, the thousand years. And that's the reason why Satan won't be loosed until it is expired or fulfilled. The earth will have its rest. It's thousand years of rest just as God had his seventh day of rest. Kind of sheds a little light on what Peter says when he says a day in the eyes of the Lord is as a thousand years. A day in God's creation is a thousand years of earth history. And for God it's nothing. Whether his judgment comes today or a millennium from now, it's nothing because he's above time. Whether our salvation comes today or 50 years from now. It's assured. Paul spoke of our justification in Christ, our sanctification, and our glorification at the rapture, all in the past tense, because there is as good as done. Christ's second coming is as sure as His first coming in Bethlehem. He came once in Bethlehem. He'll come the second time at the Mount of Olives, split it in half, and inaugurate a kingdom. Next week, we'll look a little bit at the Jewish calendar briefly. I want to show you some pretty famous people in history, uh, Jewish rabbis, as well as famous Bible uh, uh, or Christian uh, scholars over the years have dated the earth. And it all comes relatively uh, in the same uh, neighborhood as what we've just done. So, when we're talking about the rest that remains for the people of God, we're not talking about centuries, folks. We're talking about decades. Decades. We can rejoice. So I hope these things aren't a distraction from Revelation and an exegetical study thereof, but I believe it sheds light. And I hope you find this interesting. We don't just throw these numbers out there. We come to them by believing the Scriptures. And I certainly don't make an apology for it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for teaching us. And thank you that we can trust it, even in matters of chronology. Lord, we look forward to the day, not just when... We, we thank you for the rest we have in Christ. But we look forward to the day where, as it says there in Isaiah 11, the whole earth is at rest. 
when even the creation will be given rest as you rested on the seventh day, <clears throat> when the creature will cease to groan and travail, and when all your plans and purposes for this creation will be fulfilled before you create a new heaven and a new earth. And we're thankful that as the people of God through Jesus, through his death, his burial, and resurrection, we Gentiles, alongside of faithful Jews that believe, we can have a part in all these things. We can have a part in what your plans are for this present creation and in the new heaven and the new earth that awaits and the ages to ages that will come. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to rest in that in a time when everything and everyone is so busy, so cumbered as Martha was. But it was Mary that chose what was needful. When there was so much to be done around the house, she sat at Jesus' feet and learned of him. We should be able to do that because of these truths. Bless the food. Be with those who are traveling and not amongst us today. And... Uh, we acknowledge that thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.